Welcome to Empowered Leadership. We share candid conversations with successful leaders about what it takes to cultivate the leadership, life, and legacy you desire, and to do it with confidence, ease, and joy. I'm your host, Alexandra Reese. So hello, welcome to another episode of Empowered Leadership. I'm your host, Alexandra Reese, and today I'm joined by Felicia Rivers, Director of Talent Acquisition at Tillamook County Creamery Association. They're the makers of the famed Tillamook cheese, which you can now find at grocery stores and on airplanes nationwide. Felicia has over two decades of experience as a talent acquisition leader at notable companies like Comcast, Leatherman Tools, and Legacy Health. I met Felicia at a recent executive roundtable hosted in Portland, uh, where I attended her presentation on how to build community and culture in today's modern workplace. And I was really impressed by the thoughtful way that Tillamook was approaching building culture in a very diverse workforce, which includes shift workers, member owners, and then professional staff who were sometimes fully on-site, sometimes hybrid, sometimes fully remote, and the way that they were really specifically intentional about embedding values into the culture and using that to really drive engagement and performance. And I thought, that's a challenge I know most leaders are struggling with, so I wanted to bring her on to share insights and advice from her experience. So without further ado, Let's dive in. Hi, Felicia. Thank you so much for joining me on another episode of Empowered Leadership. How are you doing? I'm doing great. And thank you so much for having me. Wonderful. Well, I can't wait to dive in. And I shared this with you before our call, but as the name of the show is Empowered Leadership, the first question I always like to ask people is, what does empowered leadership mean to you? That's a great question. And I had to give that a little bit of thought of like, what does that mean to me? And as I think about it, it's empowered. It means that someone has provided the proper vision, direction, they've set proper expectations, and then they've allowed the team the autonomy to achieve those goals. And that has to be top bottom. So if I am the person that is giving direction, I would have needed to have a clear vision given to me so that I can share that with my team. And I would also need the autonomy to, you know, achieve my goals and then provide that support when needed. So the person needs to feel comfortable and have that psychological safety that if I'm not clear, or if I feel like I've not done something appropriately, that I have a chance to say I'm not clear and that it's okay, or I need help. (laughs) Yeah, right. So clarity on the vision and where we're going, autonomy to figure out what's the best way for me to deliver on my goals, and then the support to be successful. Yes. So I have worked with a lot of leaders on the autonomy piece, and that seems like a huge challenge today. Like, what does it actually mean to create the structure, the systems, the processes that enable autonomy so that we can distribute decision-making, distribute power, and be more effective and efficient? What are the recommendations or better practices that you've seen work well that enable real effective autonomy? Such a great question. I've seen a few different things in my time. 
I'm sure you've probably seen or heard of, you know, like a racy or Mm -hmm. some sort of, you know, red, yellow, green that folks have had with their leaders. So I'll I'll do the red, yellow, green with a manager that I had in a previous life. We did that. He sat down and said, "Okay, here's the things. These are red. I don't want you to make a single decision on this unless you talk to me first. Here's Mm -hmm. the yellow things. You go ahead and make your decision, but I want you to let me know that you've done that. And the green is like, you don't even need to talk to me about that. Just go. So that works if the leader can, you know, stand by that. Sometimes folks do that, but I hear this term a lot now, FOMO. There's a fear of missing out. So it's like, wait, they're making those decisions and they're not including me. Hold on. I need to know more. And I think that I don't think anyone means anything by it, but it does hinder the ability to get things done. And so that's a way to try to do that. But everybody has to do it. I mean, everybody in that sphere that's kind of trying to have that, like, here's how we make our decisions. Here is the direction that we're going to go in. Here is the, you know, red, yellow, green, so to speak. But if you can't do that, it almost makes it worse, if that makes sense. Yeah, because you're coming in with the expectation that I'm going to have this autonomy. And then your expectation is consistently being unmet, which, as you know, as a person in the talent world, misaligned expectations create more toxicity and dysfunction in culture than, you know, having expectations that I might be micromanaged and then having those expectations met. At least there's consistency and clarity. Exactly. And it's unfortunate because you're right. It does create all of those things. And that may not necessarily be what the leader is shooting for. And it truly could be a situation where they really just wanted to know a little bit more and they were okay with the decision. But depending on how you communicate with the person that you're talking to, they're like, oh, I'm being micromanaged. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily what's happening. I love to talk about psychological safety because there has to be that agreement or understanding that I can come to you and say, hey, when you asked me that, were you looking for me to give you more information? Did you really want to help make that decision? If you can stop and clarify as much as possible when that's happening, but your leader has to have given you that green light that it's safe to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's so much embedded in this conversation that that I want to dig into. And one piece is the psychological safety. Another piece is the level of clarity you need to set up front around vision and goals so that people can move forward with confidence toward a goal without people getting that FOMO of, am I missing out on making a decision? So it gets to that, I think, way you'd framed it at the start of our conversation of you've got to empower people with a vision and goals. And then you've got to support them with an environment of psychological safety where they can ask questions as they're working toward that vision. And I'm curious, what advice, you could start with either of them, but what advice would you give leaders based on your experience about how to get those two things right? I think from the vision piece, it's having everyone understand what the North Star is. I think that I've worked places where it's been done really well, and I've worked places where it hasn't been done as well as it could be. And in the places where it's done really well, you can ask anyone what we're trying to do here as an organization, and people can answer that question. When it's not done well, then you have some variations in the answers that you get. So I think it starts there with how do we communicate our vision in a way that no matter what 
your role is, you understand what your piece of us getting to where we want to go is. So I think that's the first step in creating that. And then taking that a step further, when you start to talk about, you know, how we not have, you know, fear of missing out or how do we properly set it? That's the heart of peace. And I will not profess to be able to tell anyone the best way to do that. But what I can say is setting that with your team of, hey, here's the things that our team, here's our goals towards helping the organization get to their goals. And here's how we are going to take care of the parts that we need to take care of. I am going to leave your team to take care of this portion. I am going to handle this portion. If you have any questions, problems, please let me know. And by the way, these other portions will be handled by these teams. And so really having people understand that, that sounds so simple. It can, it should be relatively simple. And I think the part that I often see organizations miss is going that next step from here's our annual operating plan and budget to what are our departmental and then our team level goals in support of that and making sure that we're really thinking at those more detail-oriented levels about what we need to do to achieve that annual strategy, and then how are we measuring success? And then one thing that I found to be really successful is for those key results that are tracking progress, putting some type of reporting out there that people can self-service get input into. So I worked with one organization where the CEO, people perceived him as a micromanager because he was always checking in to see how are we doing on fundraising? How are we doing on our legislative strategy? How are we doing on da-da-da-da? And really, he just wanted to make sure that one, we're on track, and two, if there are places where we're not I'm being responsive and providing support. And so what we did was we created some self-service opportunities for him to go and get the data without interrupting the team. So it meant his need to get the information without putting a burden on the team to go into meetings and constantly update him. And I think that's the best way to do it. And it serves a lot of purposes. It serves the purpose of, to your point, of allowing people to get that information at their own time. It is a comfort to me, if I'm that person, that I know mm-hmm. this is being done and I know exactly where to go get it. We do a lot of that where I am today, where we have Power BI reports that come out on a weekly basis. So you can see different dashboards for information that folks would like to know more on a real-time basis. And I think it's mm-hmm. an amazing way to help folks get into that place where I don't need to check in because I know it's getting done because I can see the numbers. Yeah. Yeah. So vision, cascade goals down to the team level and really do that quarterly work, which so many organizations don't do, and then self-service on the data so that you aren't interrupting people's workflow and creating that sometimes false perception of micromanagement. And then on the bottom upside of how you create that environment of psychological safety that enables people to, you know, really work together effectively. You said you're really passionate about that. So tell us more about what you've seen work in terms of how to create and foster that environment. I think, and I'll tell you things that have happened to me with teams that I've led in the past One of the things that I will say about me personally is what you see is what you get. And anyone who knows me will tell you that. And so I'm very, you know, frank about, you know, how I feel about certain things in the nice way. I mean, I'm not, you know, trying to, you know, 
basically by me doing that, it shows you that I'm open for your feedback. And I say, when I talk to people, is there anything that I'm doing that's, you know, kind of making you crazy or anything that I'm doing that you really feel like you'd like to see me not do? And I had a team at some place where I used to work and I was trying to get justification for an additional headcount to help our team. And we had a temporary that was working for us. And I was kind of in meetings saying, oh, she's doing such a great job, blah, blah, blah. And the team, the other two came to me and they said, can we talk to you for a minute? And I was like, sure. So they bring me into my office. And they said, you know, you've been talking about this person and saying what a great job she's doing, but what about us? And I was like, oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> and I had to tell them, first of all, the first thing I said to them was thank you for coming and telling me because I truly appreciated it because I can't fix anything if I don't know. And I would have not liked if they didn't feel like they could come to me. And so I was really happy that I had set the stage where they could come to me and say that to me. And I apologized to them. I told them what I was up to. And I said, I will not let this happen moving forward. And thank them again, as we finished our conversation and told them that they could always come to me with things that, you know, were of concern. And I think that's how you do it. You have to say it, demonstrate it. And then when it happens, you have to make good on your word that you can come to Yeah, how you respond when somebody takes you at your word will set the stage for every future interaction you have. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And something you did that I think is so important is you regularly asked for feedback. So I often hear leaders say something like, well, I set the expectation that I have an open door and I'm here for feedback. And people know because that's in our values. And I set it at our all hands that I'm open and I want to hear it. And then I'll ask, okay, how often do people take you up on that? Eh, Not very often. When was the last time you asked somebody for specific feedback following an event or in the moment? Never. It's like you have to ask for it at regular intervals and shortly after, be it an after action or a debrief, because just an open door policy often isn't enough. No, it's not. And what you'll find is people aren't willing to go to take that chance. I mean, that's a leap of faith. And probably nine times out of 10, it's going to turn out okay. But put yourself in that employee's shoes. Yeah. What, why would I take the risk that it's that one out of 10 time that somebody doesn't take it well? And now I've tanked my career for what? There you go. (laughs) It's not worth it. You got it. Yeah. So you live in the HR world and I'm sure people have come to you when things are that one in 10 that don't go well. And I'm curious, how do you approach repair work in those cases? And what advice might you have for leaders who are listening, who maybe know they didn't hit the mark and need to do some repair? So what I will tell you is, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to put that, I am on the, as I call it, the happy side of um, human resources because I've handled talent acquisition the majority of my career on the HR side. That said, from time to time, I am brought into situations um, with my business partners where, you know, I might have to have some input or say something or provide a recommendation. And, you know, the first thing you have 
have to do is you have to own it. If you really didn't handle something the right way, you have to own that. And you have to acknowledge and respect the person that came and said, this didn't sit well, or this made me feel this way, or this, you know, that's the first step to healing. And that has to be done with that person to say, I understand what you said. I hear what happened, or I see how that made you feel, or I heard what you said about how it made you feel. I want you to know that that was never my intent. I apologize. Let's talk about how we move forward from here. That's my advice to people. Yeah. Yeah, And one thing I'll add to that, that I was having a coaching conversation about this just before this recording. And that is, you don't have to agree with somebody's interpretation of what happened to acknowledge and validate their personal experience, which is subjective. And as a leader, it's your job if an interaction goes south, even if you don't agree with that person to take the next step to do just what you said, which is one, I can see that didn't go well. How are you feeling and why? And then acknowledge what you heard and validate not I agree with you, but I can understand if you experienced this, why you would be feeling that. And by doing that, it all of a sudden takes you from being on opposite sides of the table to being on the same team again. That is And once you've done that, you can now come together and move forward in a productive way. But you can't do that until somebody feels like you're on the same team. That's true. It's kind of that saying that people say all the time, you know, through conflict comes compromise and, you know, or through conflict comes better understanding. And it's true. Sometimes you do have to go through that uncomfortable conversation or uncomfortable situation where we've had to have a conversation around how one might be feeling or how one might have performed. And we can come out better on the other side if we do it well. Yeah, if we do it well. So something you'd shared as a preface to your response to that question was, I'm in the happy side of HR, which is talent acquisition. And it's a little ironic considering I know a lot of organizations find talent acquisition to be a huge pain point right now. So they may not feel like they're on the happy side. I'm curious, what guidance would you give for leaders and how to be successful in navigating what can feel like, I think for many, a very dynamic and challenging and ever-changing labor market? Well, that's a big question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'll let you take it where you want to (laughs) go. I think what I would say is I'll start with the how to think about this as a leader. As you think about bringing new talent onto your team, I think that you should think of it as an opportunity and an exciting time in your career with an organization is that you have the opportunity to think about what do I need on my team? So, you know, what's my team today? My team is full of introverts. We'll just say that. It would be nice to add a little bit of diversity and have someone who comes in who's a little bit more extroverted, who will speak out a little bit more. I just use that one as a simple, but I think it's nice to take this time to think about what do you have on your team and what would be a great ad for your team, Mm -hmm. having a really good understanding of your organization's, you know, vision. So your North star, so that you're thinking about as you're growing your team, this is an opportunity to think about 
how else can we have an impact on where we're going with this person that we bring into this group? So I think of these things in a positive way, but I love talent acquisition. I mean, I've done it for over 20 years and there is nothing more exciting than making a phone call to someone and saying, you know, that job we've been talking to you about, we'd like to make that offer to you. People get so excited and it just, it still makes me excited after all this time, I still have just the best feeling of filling a job. Yeah, you, as you're answering that question, you're like energy level just skyrocketed. I could see you light up. (laughs) Yes, it is my happy place. And after all these years, I've not lost that. And I think it's, you know, you talk to people about things that excite them and they still get excited about it after so long. And that's what keeps me doing this. Yeah, you shared in your response one thing that I think is super important, and that is considering not just what's the value we need to deliver and the skill set we need to deliver that value, but what do we need in terms of complements to our team dynamics? And that would be great to have somebody who's more extroverted. It would be great to have somebody who comes from a different type of industry background or educational background. And you know this, but some listeners might not. There has been some great research done, and I'll put a link to one of my favorite HBR kind of meta-analyses of the research on you know, how diversity of your team, not just in gender or race and ethnicity, but in terms of other facets of characteristics actually improves performance and that diverse teams will outperform homogenous teams, even if those homogenous teams have a group of people who perhaps by objective measures like educational attainment might seem to be better suited to outperform the diverse team. That is, from all the research that I've seen, um, just from my observation of watching teams over years, I could not agree more. It is so much about having those differences because you'll have someone who will say, well, how can we do that? And it seems like such a simple question. Well, because we always have. Well, why? And it's like, because of this, this, and this. Well, what if we did this? And then Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, it may not be that thing. Like I always say, bring your idea. And it may not be that thing that we do, but it'll be an iteration of that where we've talked it through and said, well, you know, we can't do exactly that. But how about if we did this plus maybe this and, you know, took this away? And next thing you know, you've got these great ideas. Yeah. And it sounds like that's an approach that Tillamook has really embedded in its talent strategy. I'm curious, how do, or perhaps your colleagues really work with leaders and managers, ensure that they're able to develop and lead diverse teams, because that is a real skill set in itself. It is. And I would say that Our organization, thanks to my boss, has brought a real value on building a culture of inclusivity Mm -hmm. and valuing differences. And so I think that those two things are huge. We have talked a lot about, you know, how we value differences. We have courses on that. We have allowed folks the ability to be able to understand, you know, folks' differences and learn. I think one of the biggest things is understanding someone that may be different or have a different background or whatever. If we all sit down in a room together, no matter how different we are, we will find that we have a lot of commonalities, but, you know, sometimes we're just not put in the position to be able to do that. So I think just understanding and valuing that someone might have a different approach and having an environment where that's okay, bring that difference with you, it's welcome, 
it allows not only the folks who may have been formally not as excited about having a difference, be able to see why that matters and why that's important and why would I want to be a part of a team that has that. Yeah. So it sounds like that really is embedded in your values and then how you do training, how you talk to people about how they show up every day and how we support one another. I'm curious, how else do you intentionally bring your values and your culture into your talent acquisition work? And I'll leave that open-ended. It kind of depends on, you know, what I'm hiring for. But as an example, as I think about bringing new leaders into the organization and I'm having conversations with them, I will ask them, you know, when you were doing research on us, did you look at our shared values? We have five. Did you have a chance to look at them? We think they're all important, but was there one that resonated with you? I want to know that. I am interested in understanding the how does a new leader provide an environment where people feel valued and welcomed and feel they have a say. And so I asked that question because I want to know what your approach is there. And because this is who we are, and I would like for folks that are joining our team to be in that same thought or mindset. I'm curious, how often do people tend to actually have demonstrated a real understanding and digestion and reflection on your values? It's actually more often than you think, especially when you're talking about leadership. You know, when I go to work for someplace, I research them, I look at their website and, and our shared values are not hard to find. So Mm -hmm. folks nine times out of 10 have looked at them. It is every now and then disappointing to think that someone is coming in as a leader and they hadn't seen them. Yeah. (laughs) I do think it's uh, hopefully relatively common knowledge today that in workplaces that their values are all over their website, like yours, that people should be prepared to have a conversation about what it means to be a values-driven leader. Yes, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Something else you'd shared about how your values come in that I really appreciated from our earlier conversation was around how you show up in the hiring process and how you think about the way in which you engage and serve each person that comes through the hiring process so that there's an alignment with your values and your brand. Can you speak a little bit more to what that means in your organization and how you approach managing the process for the applicants? Well, I'll start with this. This is something that I may not be the first person to have ever said this, but my firm belief and when I have done, you know, interview training for leaders and other folks within an organization, whether it be this one or any place else that I've worked, is the first thing that I want people to understand is that you are the face of this organization when you are talking to a candidate. And everyone that we talk to is a customer. So mm-hmm. I can't give everybody a job, but I can give everybody a good experience because yeah. wouldn't it be awful if something that I said or someone on my team said something that made someone say, not only do I not want to work there, I don't want any of their cheese, their ice cream, their yogurt. I don't want any of it. We can't allow that to happen. Yeah, 
And that answer you gave struck me because I don't think I've ever heard somebody talk about the fact that often our people, our applicants are also our customers. So when you talk about customer experience, it can't just be the experience somebody has with our product. It has to be the experience they have with our company overall. And when you broaden that aperture, it leads to a very different way of approaching customer experience, data collection, analysis, service design, et cetera. Yes. We try to make sure that we get back to folks. Even if you don't get the job, we let you know that so that you have been informed. And it's so cute. Sometimes I'll get notes back from people saying, well, I'm going to, you know, drown my sorrows in a big bowl of such and such ice cream. And I'm like, oh, that's really nice. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) That's like the kindest response to a rejection letter I can imagine. (laughs) I hope they get a flag in the system. So if they ever reapply, it's like adorable. (laughs) Right. I mean, we do try to, you know, one of the things I think we've gotten better and better and better at over the years is trying to um, track candidates that may have been, as you might call a silver medalist. So this is someone who was really good. You know, they didn't get this particular role. It wasn't quite right. But let's look at them for another opportunity when it comes around. That is such an important part of a talent strategy, really being thoughtful about when we find great people who would align well with the way we were, our culture, the types of skills and experience we might need, not just letting them go and drift away because they're not a fit for the role at hand. How do you keep them in your talent pipeline or somehow engaged so that maybe if this isn't the right role, but you know you want them later, you're able to tap on them in an appropriate way? Well, I'll be honest, I'm not as good at that. We are not as good at that as we would like to be. But what we have is some, you know, rather primitive ways of doing that right now, which is kind of tracking some on a spreadsheet or having known that, okay, with this last role, like sometimes we'll hire same kinds of roles, like an operations supervisor. So you know who your silver silver medalists were. We've also now gotten a new code in our system where we do identify silver medalists. So now we can go and pull them up. Like I said, we're just getting better and better at it. It's one of those Mm -hmm. things that you have to continually work at. Yeah, where as you look at the talent acquisition landscape looking forward, especially given all the changes and the way we're using technology, the role of automation and jobs, what do you see as being the biggest challenges or opportunities that might totally reshape the talent acquisition landscape going forward? Oh my gosh, there's a few things. One thing, and maybe I'm old school, but I really would like to not see us get too far down the technology road when it comes to where I've seen companies. What I mean by that is I've seen companies do video interviews where you're talking into a computer and you've got a set of questions that are being, that have been asked, but you don't have a person that you're interacting with. I feel that that is very impersonal. 
using technology to help you better identify candidates in the system or using technology to figure out how to source more candidates or do some of those things I have absolutely no concerns with. But I do worry about us getting too far down the like the bot and having, you know, AI help in that way. I still think there's a place for a personal touch. And then Mm -hmm. the flip side is as an employer looking for candidates with chat GPT and all that it can do, what does that do to the resume build? And how do we have to now think about how we ask questions to make sure? I mean, granted, there's always been a monicum of uh, an ability to maybe, you know, kind of fluff up your resume. But, you know, I think we're going to have to keep our eyes peeled for that and be a little bit more astute in our questioning, interviewing of Mm. folks just Mm -hmm. to ensure. But I think we're probably maybe five years off from that. And I, I say that And then next thing you know, it's like it's next year. Yeah, especially with the pace of AI development. I mean, it's like every week there's another 100 plus tools that are being released. It's astounding the pace of progress. And it's hard to imagine how different the future could look in just one year. It's true. You think about what it looks like today versus when we all went home for two weeks in 2020. Yeah. How is your team keeping its eye on the evolutions and preparing for this very uncertain future? I have one person who actually just went to a conference, a talent acquisition conference, because, you know, we belong to certain organizations that talk strictly about talent acquisition and what's coming down the pike and what technologies are available. And we have to identify, you know, what makes sense for us, what doesn't, what what's interesting to know about so that we know it's there. So it's really Mm -hmm. just research, reading, receiving webinar information, going to conferences, that's kind of how you keep up because something comes out every day. Yeah. Part one is knowledge acquisition. Part two is making sure that you are thinking about what are different variations of the future, especially what are some extremes that we can then do some scenario planning around and some contingency planning around so that When something comes up, we have a practice around how we discuss potential futures, a practice around the way that we think about adapting our strategy, and a practice for how we pull the trigger on big decisions without letting it linger months out until our next enterprise or department level strategy review or overhaul. Because I often see organizations, they're going out and collecting data, but they don't have a practice around how we take in data and make decisions with it. And so when those unexpected things happen, they're not able to adjust very quickly. Yes, you absolutely should be thinking about, you know, as you're learning about these things, you have to think about what's the impact to my business if I don't do anything? What's the impact to the business if we decide to take on this new technology? And all of those scenarios, you're right. But that said, you can't do every new thing that comes out. So you have to figure out what works, what makes sense for our business model. Yeah, and I think that's where having a firm grasp on who are we, what are our values are so important because that's a big filter in making decisions. Just like if we know part of our company's values is to really be caring, then we aren't going to adopt technologies that make our applicants feel like you're just another member of the herd and we don't care about you. Although that decision might be appropriate for a company like Amazon, which is all about efficiency, and that's clear in their values. 
And so that may not be a conflict with their culture and the brand they want to project. You're absolutely right. We think about, you know, who we are as we make decisions, specifically where I work today, is that's one of the things that is definitely a built-in filter to how decisions and paths forward are decided upon. Yeah. As we near the end of our conversation, there's one other question I wanted to make sure I asked you, and that is what's one piece of conventional leadership wisdom that you think is no longer relevant and should be kind of X'd from our leadership culture? It's so interesting because I feel like what I have to say is too wrapped into one. I would say that I don't know if it's necessarily been said out loud, but as I entered the workforce many moons ago, it was important for one to assimilate into what the world was. You know, you needed to dress a certain way and, you know, wear your hair a certain way and just, you know, you just needed to, you know, carry yourself in this particular way to fit into the world. And I feel that that has kind of gone by the way of the dodo, so to speak. And I think it's a great thing because I think that a person should be comfortable to bring their self to work because honestly, you know, when you, we talk about compartmentalizing and all of these great, you know, words that we use, it's impossible to leave half of yourself at home. It's just not possible. And so when I, you know, that leads me to the other one, which is, you know, no emotions at work, you come to work and you put on a happy face and do our job. And, you know, not that you have to come in and, you know, be unhappy, but if something is truly going on in your world, I think what has, where we have evolved to is that it is okay to say, hey, you know, I have a sick pet at home and, you know, I'm not feeling my best today. And you get support behind that. Whereas I feel, you know, in some years in the past, that maybe wasn't necessarily how we reacted. Yeah, I would agree. And I, I'll put a kind of fine point on what you just said, which is there has to be support behind it. To our earlier point or conversation around the importance of aligned expectations, there is nothing worse than saying, we want you to come to work and share how you're feeling. And if you're having a hard time, we're going to support you. And then when people do that, you go, I'm so sorry you're having a hard time, but you're still going to get that deliverable done today, right? <laughs> like there, there has to be a real practice of showing up and providing support, or you've done more harm than good because yes. now you've created a mismatch in expectations, which again is the root of a toxic culture. That is so true. And we're never going to get well. And I will never come to you again if yeah. you tell me that. Great. I bared my soul and I got no support. <laughs> it's that, but I have again, my report done in by ten. three. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, those some good final parting thoughts. I want to thank you so much for your time again, Felicia. This has been a real joy. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it as well. Wonderful. You can find Felicia on LinkedIn. I've put a link to her profile in the show notes. And as always, thank you for joining and have a lovely day. To find out more on how you can improve your leadership, life, and impact with confidence, ease, and joy, please visit my website, opastrategy.com. That's O-P-A strategy.com. And then please make sure to search for Empowered Leadership wherever you get your podcasts and click to subscribe so you don't miss a future episode. And if you enjoyed this one, please do share with a friend or a colleague. It makes a big difference. Thank you so much and have a lovely day.